welcome to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading practitioners of videographic criticism. I'm your host, Will DeGravio, and a few days ago on Twitter, I teased a very special surprise, um, an announcement about the future of the podcast uh, that I would be sharing on this episode. And the surprise comes in the form of another person. Hello, Emily. Hi, Will. (laughs) (laughs) So... The surprise news is that Emily Co um, is now joining the Video Essay Podcast as an associate producer, and Emily has already been helping me out behind the scenes in so many ways, including chiefly getting me really excited and re-energized about the podcast for this coming year. But welcome, Emily. It's it's so great to have you here and to be working with you. Thank you, Will. Yeah, I'm so excited to be part of this. It's crazy going from a listener to seeing all the amazing work that you do. So thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, really. I, I'm the one who's indebted to you. So for, for everyone listening in, uh, Emily and I met, I guess I guess it would be close to three months ago now, which is pretty crazy, in, in early December 2021 at UMass Amherst, which I don't think I... I don't know if I talked about this event on the podcast itself, but I definitely, I wrote about it in the newsletter. I was was invited um, to UMass Amherst to give keynote address, which I still can't really believe I did. (laughs) Something So awesome, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Like something I didn't feel qualified to do, but like luckily Emily was there and gave an amazing presentation and and (laughs) screened um, her video essay. Um, on on Citizen Kane, it's transcending Bazan's dichotomy. I think I also shared it in the newsletter and stuff. It, it's amazing, and um, you should go check it out and check out all of Emily's work. But yeah, like we, when we were, I think I was waiting, like preparing my notes or whatever, and like we started talking, and you were like, "I love the podcast." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like really? Like it's so weird because I feel like for so much of this, I've the podcast has been like in the pandemic, so I don't really get to like run into people and who like know it so it was like a very cool experience and then we started talking and Emily in talking with Daniel Pope and Barbara Zecchi who are both um, faculty at UMass and who I've worked with before and who are both fantastic they're like oh, yeah, Emily's the star of the UMass film studies department oh my and gosh so we started talking <laughs> no. and we watched your video essay I was like oh my god and then you expressed interest in like helping me out and I was like uh yes please <laughs> so um yeah I mean did I did I miss anything and please tell the listeners like who you are and how you got interested in, in in video essays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I was so excited to meet you because I had been listening to the video essay podcast regularly and actually learning a lot from it. And so I was like, yes, I need to tell him how excited I am about this podcast. So, um, but yeah, so I'm Emily and I'm currently a senior at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm in the film studies program. And I am interested in videographic criticism because I I think video essays have made me think about films in a different way and or have awakened me to things that I hadn't noticed before. So I'm really looking into exploring the unique capabilities of the form. Like what can we discover by writing with a moving image? So yeah, that's what brought me here. Heck yeah, and, and everyone should really go watch Emily's video on Bazan Citizen Kane because there's a moment in that video where you attempt to kind of recreate certain elements of, of the film, which for me was like an incredibly innovative approach and, and something that I've seen others 
sometimes attempt to do, but it's like really hard uh, to do. Um, can you talk about that that moment and describe it better than I am now? Yeah, no, no, no. Yes. So it's a split screen. So I'm attempting. So I'm using the images from the film to create a different type of sequence. So it's the same sequence, but in the actual film, it's just one long take, um, like a deep focus long take, or at least an illusion of it. But then I use images from the film on the other side of the split screen to kind of imagine what it would have been like if it used analytical editing. So there's a lot more intercutting, there's a lot more close-ups, so it, it was difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the kind of thing that I, I would be curious to talk to someone who was not familiar with like an editing software and, and videographic criticism about that, because one of the things that's so interesting about this kind of work is that in watching your video, it, it's it's so clean and makes complete sense that it kind of masks the labor <laughs> behind it and and like the 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 work and the tact and the the knowledge of the object that it's like hard to fully appreciate it. So I feel like sitting in the audience, like knowing like the technical side and the the audiovisual criticism side, I was like, whoa, like this rocks. <laughs> um, and so Thanks. you know, you're still wrapping up your studies at um, UMass. So I will. Um, save the dreaded question of like, what are you doing after? Like, rah, rah, rah. Um, but so, but everyone should just know that Emily um, is now part of the podcast. Um, you know, I hope, I'm sure you'll be hearing from, from people who listen and we'll figure out a way to, you know, we're slowly figuring out how Emily's going to become more um, integrated into the podcast, but her voice is definitely something you'll be hearing um, at the beginning of each of these episodes. Um, she was present when we recorded the the current episode today, which features a conversation with Jordan Schoenig, who's a um, lecturer at uh, SUNY Binghamton. Um, and Emily has been like kind of listening to drafts of the podcast, helping me through, like looking over questions. And I think we're really at the early stages of what I think is going to be a really awesome partnership and collaboration and thinking about like where we can take the podcast going forward. And I'm excited to hopefully perhaps work through some of that, like, on air with you and as I've said before like the listeners are always giving me feedback and ideas and like that's where the best stuff comes from um so I hope you know please use this as an opportunity if you're a listener if you've had ideas and things like that to share it with me and Emily and um yeah so I'm I'm feeling really excited because this summer will be three years of the video essay podcast which is pretty crazy so and I'm sure down the line maybe Emily will interview her own guests or, or co-interview folks with me. And, and we're really just figuring this out. But right now, Emily, it's just so great. Um, it's just so great to have you here. <laughs> Yay. No, thank you. I, I'm so excited to see this podcast evolve and also our roles evolve too. Absolutely. And and I will say it's, it's really like, I feel, I feel like, you know, one of the, like for me, I started this podcast as, um, basically right after I left Middlebury as an undergrad, which wasn't that long ago, like it's three years ago. Um, feels like yesterday to me, but I'm sure it will always feel that way. And so I think having the perspective of like, and someone who's gone through videographic criticism, like as an undergraduate and like continues to maintain this interest in it, like I just feel like a kinship with you in that way. So I feel like the partnership here, like that's what's so important. And that's like kind of the... Yeah, like the vibe of the video essay podcast 
I guess, is to just like really keep, it's a way to like keep learning. Um, and I, and I feel like the podcast for me was my way to like Absolutely. keep doing that as I was like fighting back tears, leaving Middlebury, you know, like, and so I think, you know, that, that spirit, I'm, I'm super excited to like be working with you in that regard and to like, you know, kind of bring that back into, into the fold here. So, um, but I, you know, let's now transition to teasing, um, the interview because in, if you're saying, no, we, we don't want Emily to go, not yet. This is just only the beginning. So, um, and obviously I'll link to like Emily's Vimeo page and, and, and whatnot, like on the website and Emily will we'll definitely have to get, I'm just thinking out loud now. We'll have like a little bio for you and, and updating the website and things like that. So definitely some things, uh, that, that need to be done, but this is the first step and it's, it's very exciting. So like I said, this episode features a really great conversation and I'll be curious to know what you th- thought of it, Emily, of, uh, with Jordan, uh, Schoenig, who, like I said, is a lecturer at SUNY Binghamton um, and also hosts, um, has made a number of academic audiovisual essays. But one of the reasons that I was particularly excited to talk to Jordan was he also runs a YouTube channel, Film and Media Studies, uh, with Jordan Schoenig. Um, And so he's this really interesting figure because he kind of is bringing, you know, he kind of uh, weaves together the popular and the academic um, in his in his work, um, and is kind of involved in bringing kind of academic arguments, breaking them down, making them more accessible, and making them free and easy to find for really anyone uh, who is interested. So, if you want to learn more about tracking shots or cross cutting or Laura Mulvey or Andre Bazan, maybe you watch Emily's video and you're like, I need more Bazan in my life, and then you can go to Jordan's videos and and see that. So, he's a really interesting. Um, person. And it was really great to talk to him kind of how he thinks about, you know, one of the things we talked about was that he's very early in his career in academia. And I think at one point in the interview, he says, I'm at the beginning of my career, but maybe I'm also at the end. Like it's hard to find full-time tenured work. And so really interesting to hear his perspective there and also to hear his thoughts on how he thinks about YouTube. Um, Because so often we talk about YouTube, we talk about people who are, you know, who live on YouTube full time or for the most part, full time in their work. And Jordan really has one foot in each camp and is really thinking about the pros and cons, the benefits of each, the benefits and disadvantages of each. Um, and so I just found it to be a really invigorating discussion. Um, Emily, I'd be curious to know, uh, what'd you think as the fly on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I was lucky enough to observe the magic that happened during this conversation. And I, I there was just one moment, and I, I called it the eureka moment when Will and I were kind of debriefing afterwards. And when it's when Jordan describes how videographic criticism can be a form of cinephilia, and he, he kind of gives a definition of what a video essay does and can do. And so I thought that was awesome. Yeah, let's actually play that moment right now as a little teaser for folks listening in. Here it is. And I think what you can do with videographic criticism that you can like take the marginal and blow it up or you can slow it down. You can get people to fixate on things that are ephemeral and fleeting. Um, that is That itself is like, a visual instantiation of a mode of spectatorship that some like Chris will call cinephilia. And so it made perfect sense, I think, for me to create videographic supplements for each of these chapters that are somewhat about cinephilic 
modes of seeing. Most of the things in my book are about tiny little fragments of movement. And I'm like, this thing is interesting. Do you think it's interesting? I want to show you why I think it's interesting. Um, you can, you know, you can read my chapter about it, but better yet, let me show it to you. And, you know, do you see what I see? Right. And so that do you see what I see, I think, is at the basis of this phenomenon that Chris is interested in historicizing and theorizing and investigating as this like aspect of film theory that has this beautiful through line. So there it is. I I agreed with you totally, Emily. I actually, I remember looking on the Zoom call. So basically, I just invited Emily to join this conversation just to kind of give her a sense of how the, the sausage gets made, so to speak, and, and just to kind of, you know, and also like if she's like, dude, you keep asking these questions in a really weird way, like you got to change that. So like, you know, I was kind of curious to see what would happen. And I saw you, Emily, kind of make a excited note or you kind of like grinned or smiled during this. And I actually, I also noted this quote too, like as just being a really great example for me of why I personally am so passionate about this form. Um, the simple... The idea that, you know, in this in this quote, he's talking about the Lumiere films and just the idea that through this form, we can see the first, the earliest, some of the most well-known images in moving image history that we can see and experience them in a new way still it, it is like it makes me I might have even said in the conversation, like it makes me emotional, like thinking about that. Like it's it's such a beautiful thought. And in thinking about your video essay on Citizen Kane, I remember I started making videographic criticism um, the same semester that I actually watched Citizen Kane for the first time. And I remember feeling so excited about it. But then going to the library and seeing like rows of shelves of books like just on Kane, <laughs> right? And like countless book chapters. And you think to yourself like, oh, I want to try and try and play around and like do something a little bit original, a little bit unique, like as much as, you know, one can and balancing the life of being an undergraduate and, and still learning these things. And to then have that outlet of videographic criticism to like try and express something in a new way was so important to me. And uh, I don't know, I think, I think that's why this quote kind of resonated with me. Yeah, I think video essays, you can reimagine an experience of a film. And that's what's so special about it. And I think that's what I loved about Jordan's video essay, The Wind in the Trees um, video essay. He replays, there's that one part where he replays that clip from Brave and he slows it down and plays it again and you really get to focus on the hair it, and if I had watched that film without seeing that video I say I don't think I would have noticed the hair really but yeah that's what's so special about it absolutely and I think like it, exactly like it sometimes it re like for me that that I love the phrase you just said I think it was reimagining the experience or feeling of watching a film and I think for me what's so exciting is sometimes those moments sneak up on you like you know when I like I can remember the first time I saw the shower scene in Psycho and there are video essays that recreate that feeling but then sometimes you'll watch a video essay on a film that you don't think about that often or that you don't doesn't hold a particularly special place in your heart and then someone reimagines recreates it and you go oh my god like I'm I did have this feeling and, and now I'm I'm feeling all these other things. And so it's right. it's really quite <laughs> exactly. exciting. And the conversation with Jordan, I think, really and just watching his work in general, really, really left me feeling like just just inspired and also trying to think about different ways that I can engage with the material that I'm watching. Like even outside of videographic criticism, like I just want to mm -hmm. be 
a more informed viewer and think about how animation works. Like on that level, that's what I love so much about the video, apart from the poetic approach he teaches, but just the things he breaks down and, and the things he breaks down and explains. I didn't even really know that before. <laughs> and so like, yeah, just learning is, no, too, is, yeah. is really special. So on that note, let us now transition to the conversation with Jordan. But first, very important first, I want to remind everyone here to please consider supporting the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash the video essay. I'm hopefully going to be starting blogging there um, a lot more going into the new year. I haven't been super great about it, and I apologize about that. Um, but one of my ongoing blog series there for patrons only is I'm going through all of Koganada's um, videographic criticism. Um, and uh, kind of writing short capsule reviews one by one. Emily knows this because we talked about it. I, I saw After Yang a couple weeks ago, which was phenomenal. Um, and so hopefully at some point I'll have a review published. The, the idea was to kind of have the After Yang be the last thing that I watched, but then I got saw an invitation to a, a press screening here in New York, and I was like, okay, well, I have to go. Um, so um, that's kind of something to look through on the Patreon, Patreon page. Um, and maybe that'll be something that me and Emily talk about and we kind of reimagine and things like that. So, But I also think of the Patreon page as kind of just helping sustain this show and and on your screen and, and the other things that, um, that we do. Um, please also... Uh, subscribe to Notes on Videographic Criticism, our our newsletter, um, which you can find at thevideoessay.substack.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Video Essay. We're also on Facebook. Um, and please also subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. And if you want to write a little blurb review, that can be good too. I don't really know what the point of those are. Like, I'm not exactly trying to compete with the rewatchables here? I don't know, maybe that's one of, Emily, maybe that's one of your goals. It actually is. But, um, <laughs> it is? Okay, good. I love that. We need that competitive edge. Um, but if anything, it'll make it'll make us feel good. Maybe you can be like, Emily rocked, like, so glad she's here. Like, finally, we can stop listening to that one do go on and on. So um, please consider doing that. Um, and so without further ado, here is our conversation with Jordan. So we'll we'll begin where we begin with everyone, um, and that is: Can you tell us what your your origin story uh, is? Uh, when were you first introduced to, to to video essays, and when did you get the the bug, as we call it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I have a hard time remembering exactly what video essays I was watching when I first got into them, but I but I know there's probably a small family of makers that I was watching very early on. And that included people like Kevin B. Lee, um, people like Tony Joe, every frame of painting, um, and Taylor Ramos, I think. Um, Katie Grant, who back then I knew as Catherine Grant, who was a um, who I was introduced to through film studies for free when I first got into graduate school, and then I started to um, find her videographic work. And I think Christian Keithley was one of the first video um, criticism makers that I that I got interested in. Um, and it's hard for me to pinpoint a year. 
But recently, a friend of mine told me an anecdote about how she and I met, and I had forgotten that we had met at a conference in 2013. And she said, what I remember about you and about meeting you was that we were both interested in video essays. And that completely slipped my mind. I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint that year, but I can confidently say I was interested in video essays as early as 2013. So that's, that's, that, that's pretty early. And you were at the, you attended graduate school at the University of Chicago. So were you, is that correct? And so were you at that point engaging with videographic work? Like at what point did you begin to sit down and begin making things yourself? Like did, or did you first have kind of a more academic interest in it? Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I, I got my PhD from University of Chicago, um, but I, I started my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh from 2011 to 2013. Um, so, so, you know, some folks that I know through video essays also um, also went to school there in, in Pittsburgh. I want to say that I first started watching scholarly video essays. Like, I think Catherine Grant and Christian Keithley were probably the first couple people I was getting into. Um, and then I was introduced to the world of, of, say, Vimeo and YouTube a little bit after that. And I think at first I was probably thinking, oh, this YouTube stuff, is this is not what I do. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I actually really like just w- what you can find uh, on, on YouTube. And it's kind of blown up in the last decade. Um, but for a while, I'd never made a video essay. I just kind of... Th- thought it was cool. And I thought, you know, one day I'll sit down and I'll either use Windows Movie Maker or maybe I'll fork over the cash and get a more proper video editing suite and I'll play around. And that, you know, at a certain point, I think before uh, before 2017, where I went to the videographic criticism camp, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I can't remember when this happened, but I had this thing that I wanted to make. And I think maybe I was watching Supercuts or people who were doing kind of compilation videos. And I had this compilation that I wanted to make for whatever reason. I don't know, but it like, I just wanted to make it. So do you know the movie Brief Encounter? Right. So do you know the scene in, in Brief Encounter where the protagonist um, is about to throw herself in front of the train and she stops right before she does. And there's this like holding shot of her face with the light from the train flickering on her as the camera at a canted angle slowly writes itself as she kind of regains composure. So, I mean, I love, I love that film, Brief Encounter, and I, and I love this moment. It's like hard not to be wowed by a moment like this. Um, but then I got fixated on, on other scenes from movies that were this, right? So there's a movie, in, uh, there's a moment in Deep Blue Sea by, I think that's Terrence Davies, in which is basically an homage to this. And then I was thinking about other moments. I think there's a, a moment in... Um, I can't remember what, but it's one of those melodramas of, of, of the unknown woman, as Cavell calls them, with a similar thing. And so I wanted to find as many movies as I can in which someone stood in front of a train with the light flickering on their face. Because I just found this to be a compelling image and I thought it would look cool to kind of create something where you juxtapose them. Like I, I had this inc- inclination for a supercut, but I can only think of like five or six examples. And I think I had like Windows Movie Maker and I like found these clips on YouTube and I like put it together in this very amateurish, shoddy thing. But like, in a sense, it was my first like dive into it because I had an itch that I needed to scratch and I wanted to like make something and I could barely figure out how to use the software, but I found it interesting and, and fun. Um, and then I didn't make anything else. This was like a, a three minute thing. I didn't tell anyone about it. It was just like a thing that I made. And it was really with um, 2017 uh, Scholarship in Sight and Sound at Middlebury where I had the experience of, okay, I'm, I saw the, the call for applications. I was interested in this thing. It was at the tail end of, of graduate school, really. I was just about to defend my dissertation. 
this seemed like kind of an interesting thing to do. Um, and it, frankly, it was one of the best, if not the best thing that I did in graduate school, um, just in terms of camaraderie, in terms of excitement, of like the really good vibes that can happen in academic spaces where people are mutually encouraging. Um, the mentorship that I got from everyone involved um, who was running the program, I just, I loved everything about it. And I, I like to say I made my first proper video essay through that experience. I, I definitely want to follow up on, on video camp um, in a second. But my first question is, does that original supercut exist somewhere online or do you have it somewhere or because I, I would love to watch it? <laughs> so it, it does exist on, on my YouTube channel. It is actually the, the first video chronologically on my YouTube channel. And you can tell it, it dates about four years ago, but I had made it probably six or seven years ago. Um, I just knew I would, I would like lose it. And so I just like, I just archived it on the channel because it's a good place to keep stuff. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's shoddy. Like the aspect ratios are off. I didn't even know how to resize uh, images. So like, there's like a, there's like one, one of the clips is from like, um, from, from a Chaplin film and it's like small. I, I really didn't know what I was doing, but you can tell, like I wanted to make something and I made it and it, it exists. Um, I showed it to Katie Grant. Uh, I don't know how I mustered the courage to show her something, but, you know, Katie Grant is so, as you know, she's so encouraging um, and generous and kind of is someone, you know, as an academic who makes you feel as if you can kind of bare your soul and feel comfortable doing it. And so I said, Katie, do you think this is interesting at all? And she was like, oh, this is interesting. I was like, oh, great. So um, it does exist. And also a great person to show it to who obviously has engaged with Brief Encounter videographically. Oh, yeah. Of course, Katie (laughs) in a a fantastic um, work. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because for me, I'm excited to go watch the supercut um, after our interview is over, and I'll, I'll link to it on our on our website, or if you can find it on Jordan's YouTube page. But sometimes those videos, even if they're the you know the chaplain image is not sized properly or things like that, it kind of bears like the 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 traces of like the videographic impulse, like this desire to to create, to make, to engage with it, and like you can really feel that on those videos that don't. That, you know, it's like here is someone who just wants has this idea and they just want to get it out into the world and it doesn't the polish is not what's important. And to to me, having not seen the video, but seen heard people describe videos and go through a similar experience that you did like that. Those to me are my favorite kinds of videos. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. Right. Like the ones that are at the very early stages, like what compels you to make something when you really don't know the tools that you're that you're using. Right. And I think for so much of us who who do this. Right. You learn to do something through the act of wanting to make something right. It's kind of it's hard to imagine learning the ways in which the editing suite works if you've never done editing before abstractly before you want to make something right. At least the video camp ethos is, is kind of like you you learn the tools through the desire to, to make something. One of my I- ideas that I would love to do someday, and if anyone's listening and really loves this, feel free to steal it, is to like do like a, a video essay film festival, but it's only like people's first video essays or something. Or, like, or you could do like a pairing of their, their first and their most recent or something like that. And to just kind of see everyone's kind of origin stories play out, um, I think would be really special. But let us get to video camp because I'm particularly excited to talk to you about this for a couple of reasons. One, and we just established this before we started recording, I was at the video camp that you were at. I've, I've written about the significance of covering that as an intern at the local Middlebury Town newspaper. And I mean, if I don't do that, I'm not here talking to you and and, and doing all of these things. Um, but what was significant about that year is it was only graduate students who could apply 
to video camp in 2017, I believe, um, or was primarily a graduate student year. And I think you might be the first. I apologize if I'm wrong, but we've we've had a, alums of video camp on before. But I think you're the first of that year specifically. So I'm I'm. I I've I've a couple different ways to approach this but my first is how did how do you remember feeling at the time about incorporating videographic criticism into your uh you know you're dedicating your time to that as as a graduate student because so much has been written about is videographic criticism accepted? Is it not? It, it seems to be growing more, like in more, re- you know, that was five years ago. But even just as recently as last year, Kevin Ferguson and Drew Morton had an article essentially guiding people through getting this work accepted when they're up for tenure or applying to jobs and things like that. So do you remember feeling any of that skepticism? Was that something that you talked about with your fellow video campers? Like, could you just take us in, I guess, the general mood and vibe of people there and what was going through your head at the time? Yeah, I feel like um, that was very much a topic of discussion in Video Camp 2017, right? We would often discuss the status of this this approach to scholarship as a question of legitimacy in, in the academy. Um, but already by that time, a big step had been taken toward legitimacy because of In Transition, right? Just the fact that there was this journal called In Transition, and it was associated with the probably the biggest and most important major journal in film studies. Uh, that was huge. I think back then it was Cinema Journal. And the fact that you had this kind of body of, of video essay creation and pedagogy as associated with people like Jason Mattel and Christian Keithley, the fact that you already had that means that like you had made a lot of steps toward that. At the same time, I was not thinking I would incorporate any videographic work into my, say, PhD. Like I was happy enough, like doing this thing. I mean, I I would have been happy enough, like doing this thing for two weeks, hanging out with these people, learning from them, like absorbing myself in in the practice of videographic criticism and then not having anything added to my CV at the end of this. I was very much happy with that. I also knew that there was something like I thought, oh, it could be cool to try to make something and maybe see if I can get it into in transition. Right. Which is which is what I did. So that was a nice kind of you know slice of legitimate academic recognition um, for the stuff that I that I did there. Um, but I don't think most people were planning on the possibility of making videographic criticism part of their dissertation. But I do actually do remember maybe one or two people in particular who, who did do it and who, who kind of got the idea for it through, through video camp. Um, and I know one person was successful. Um, her dissertation was not completely videographic, but I believe that she successfully incorporated videographic works into her dissertation and they were recognized as real parts of her, of her scholarship. So I don't know what the precedent was for that, but it very much existed. The ideas were being tossed around at this uh, at this space in 2017, and they were put into practice quickly after. Do you remember what you like what you worked with at the at the video camp? Like what what were your source materials? Yeah. So so how I remember video camp going down and you probably know this know this well and probably probably better than I do is I remember the first thing that Jason and Chris asked us to do was pick a film that we would be working with with these um, videographic exercises. So you had to commit to one film. And I uh, I committed to the movie Gravity, um, which I think, you know, when you're in these academic spaces, at least for me, you know, I'm always like, ooh, 
bad choice. You know, I, I, you always like you, you choose something. You're like, ooh, this is this is not this is not what I want to do to represent myself. But you know, at the you know, I was writing a dissertation about you know about movement and um, you know camera movement and, and kinetic stuff, and so I was thinking actively about that film Gravity. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about extracting any interesting philosophical thoughts from its from its themes and narrative, but from from its cinematography, I was genuinely interested in. Um, and so we did a number of videographic exercises, and I had to use that film. A couple times I I thought it worked well, and a couple times I was like, oh crap, uh, this is hard. And I distinctly, so you remember the Pecha Kucha exercise, right? I, that was the first thing that we did. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a surprising obstacle that I have, which is that gravity as a film is too pretty. And its prettiness was actually an obstacle in me asserting my own authorial autonomy. Like the shots are too picturesque and pretty and polished. And so it just looks like a fan vid. And I don't... and. And I and like very quickly, I was drawn to making something that seemed, you know, aesthetically pleasing. But then I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is not this is not videographic criticism. This is the opposite. This is a fan video. And I need to, like, assert my own interest above the, you know, the gorgeousness of this film. Right. Because prettiness, I think, is especially kind of sneered at within within academic spaces. Right. You don't want it pretty. You want it to be interesting. Um, and so that was just one thing that I hadn't thought about until I was like, oh, this is one of the, the surprising pitfalls of working with per- certain kinds of material. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it is not it is that thing you don't realize until you start doing it, I, I think. And I I also think that, you know, so I've done the I've done the um, exercises a few times with various things. And so when I was the T.A., I made them along with uh, the participants and I chose the HBO miniseries John Adams because I was interested in it not in any formal way but just in like a how is this like a nationalist like how does this represent history like I was interested in purely like a kind of a more political way so I was like okay how do we how do I like maybe this would be an interesting challenge to myself to like take something that I'm not interested in, in aesthetically at all and then like have to reckon with it in those ways so it almost seems like you had like the inverse thing where you're dealing with this beautiful object and then trying to to figure it out. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I, I almost wanted to say, wait, 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 don't confuse me for this. I'm only interested in this film in these two ways. I, I'm not interested in these other ways. Um, but, but yeah, exactly. I have also heard those who are, and by heard, I mean like probably I'm remembering like YouTube comments or something, but like, like uh, the accusation that it's almost easier to make a video essay when you're dealing with like pretty images or things like that. As in like, it's easier to just kind of co-opt the beauty of the cinematography or, or, or something like that. And so, which I, I never bought to begin with, but I think you've just outlined a case for why that really doesn't make any sense. And if, if anything, it can be harder to, to not just like elevate just to just to bask in the glory of the image and instead to actually try and cut through that and, and say something about it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. But I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this later. But I almost think that, that 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 comment already marks a division between the scholarly video essay and the YouTube video essay. And I think and I think one of the reasons I was so anxious about the prettiness of the images of gravity was because I had intuited a set of maybe values attached to the scholarly video essay, where a kind of slickness, a prettiness, a fan vid essay 
esque quality is something that we're markedly not trying to do. Um, whereas I think on YouTube, fan vid and video essay kind of almost share a spectrum. And you know, I think that so many videos are kind of showing off the beauty of particular shots and creating a kind of satisfaction, a rhythmic pleasure, and setting them to, to music with, with kind of snappy editing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I definitely want to follow up on on that as well, because I think there's a lot to unpack there and in your work specifically. But I want to just just continue kind of in thinking about your career now. So um, you're I'm correct in saying that you're still like in the early part of your academic career. Um, And so in the bulk of the scholars who I've talked to on the show fall into um, the group who, for the most part, have gotten tenure through a kind of the way that that happens and then are at a point in their career where they can uh, pursue videographic work very much. And so um, I'm wondering how uh, you, you you think about that and, and feel free to share as much or as little as you like um, and just how you you balance that. And I know you just ha- have a book out now, which um, is fantastic. And so you're doing a bunch of different things. And so but I, I would just be curious to how you find that balance and just how you approach it, because I imagine there might be folks listening who are in a in a similar situation. And for me, as someone who hopes to perhaps be in a PhD program sometime in the next year or two, I'm asking for myself as well. <laughs> no, it's a good question. And I mean, the the idea that I'm a um, I'm in my early part of my career is kind of a is kind of a not even an easy statement to make because, frankly, I'm both at the earlier part of my career and at the later part of my career, depending on how things go, right? So I'm in a very similar circumstance to a lot of peers, right? And so I'm not sure how long I'll I'll stay in academia um, and and do this kind of thing. Um, I've been a kind of roving academic for for a few years now. I don't really think too much about um, dividing my time between videographic work and and other work. I mean, because frankly, for the last few years, I've spent so much of my time on teaching and and I guess finishing the book that uh, I'm not doing that much in terms of like the the publishing element and on either side. Right? It's kind of been a while since I've done like a new videographic project outside of the work of teaching. I mean, we'll, we'll, we will talk about this in a little bit, but, you know, in 2017, when I was part of the videographic camp and I made a kind of a standalone video essay, that was like, you know, a, a work that I made. I put a lot of time into it um, and, you know, I and I published it and I haven't done anything since um, in that capacity. Right. If I've done videographic work, I've always related it to teaching at this point. Right. Because the last few years, that's really what I've been focused on as I've been working these, you know, fairly heavy teaching load jobs. Um, so, yeah, I do think it'd be a, a different position to be as like a tenured professor and to really get into the videographic work as part of one scholarly output, the way that someone like Jason Mattel is doing, right? Really pushing the boundaries, getting recognized for the work that he's doing um, and really kind of creating ambitious projects within videographic work that are more or less groundbreaking because no one else has done them, right? And he's convincing these large institutional bodies of the legitimacy of what he's doing, right? So I don't think I would attempt to do it what Jason has been able to do, uh, to do um, simply because of the position that I'm in. And in terms of jobs that seem to or like, you know, job ads, I mean, there's only been one job ad that I've seen that seemed to say we're interested in videographic criticism. And frankly, that was at UMass Amherst. Um, so, um, 
And that's that was the only time I've ever seen that, right? So it's that's indicative of something that might be changing, where the very idea of videographic work might not just be seen as this oh this 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 thing that you can do if you say can you know incorporate production elements into your film studies class, but it might be something more grounded in what an institution is looking for. But I would still say that that's the very early stages because I haven't seen any other institution uh, make it explicit that they're looking for someone with that kind of practice and expertise. In that, I think I think that's a perfect transition to be talking about your your YouTube channel because I think a lot of times when we talk about videographic criticism in like the broadest sense, and I think that your YouTube channel and what we're going to talk about falls in that umbrella somewhere. Um, um, you know, and obviously you have made video essays that clearly do, but I'm talking about the lecture type videos that we're going to talk about. And I think that sometimes when we talk about the video essay, we talk about the uh, pedagogical benefit of it, that these videos that are made can be used to teach something. But your video, but it seems to me like when we talk about that, that's just like one spoke in the wheel for a lot of people. But for you, it seems like with these videos, that is the driving force is that teaching element. So it makes sense that that's the context in which you create, as you just said. Um, so, and, and first, I also just want to give a shout out to the title of your book, which is The Shape of Motion, Cinema and the Aesthetics of Movement is the new one, is your new book. Congratulations again. But so you have a YouTube channel called Film and Media Studies with uh, Jordan Schnodig. And I, I would just be curious before we get into like the your, your process of the channel, like when did you create it and what was your, your motivation for, for doing so? And then we'll get into kind of the more the, the nitty gritty. So the YouTube channel, like a lot of other YouTube channels, was my quarantine hobby of, of 2020. I can't remember exactly when I decided to start putting videos um, on the channel. I was consistent with uh, videos that I was making for for teaching. I was teaching a full year's worth of coursework at SUNY Binghamton, where I currently teach now, but I was teaching it online. I was uh, living in Ann Arbor, Michigan with my partner and teaching remotely at this new school where I had never set foot. And I was making video lectures because the courses that I was teaching were, some of them were very lecture heavy. Um, uh, he was teaching a hundred-person intro film class. Um, I t- often teach that film that, that I often teach that class when it's that big of a class and kind of a lecture style. Um, there's discussion, but it's very lecture-oriented. And so, like a lot of folks, I started to make videos that were video versions of my lectures. Um, there was a point at which I thought this online teaching thing is hard. And and everyone is suffering. I'm suffering. Other teachers are suffering. People around the world are suffering. Students don't really want to do this. Um, and some students were great and discussions I had were great. And I was so grateful for just being able to have a teaching gig. But at the same time, right, as everyone knows who's done online learning, it's you can't make up for a lot of things. And so part of my motivation was, you know, a lot of my students aren't watching my videos. I might be more motivated to put effort into these videos if I were to share them with other people. And actually doing that, it really improved my my happiness and level of like sense of purpose, right? When I realized, oh, you know what? I don't have to just like keep these things like on my computer and only for my students who are some of, like, you know, 15% of whom are here for pure interest, 75% of, or 85% of whom are here for a breath requirement. And, you know, I, you know, I like teaching in, in its largest capacity. I want to share ideas with folks. Um, I want to help them understand things that they're interested in, but I have a hard time understanding. And I didn't see a reason why 
sharing these videos on YouTube was a problem and my boss was okay with it, right? I thought there might be, he's like, oh, are you okay with these materials which are technically part of this university being shared online? And he said, oh, why not? I don't care. And so I just I just started to do it as a thing. And then it became, became a kind of like therapeutic hobby that I enjoyed. Um, and then you know, as as you know, a, you, you know, YouTube popularity can mean a lot of things. My YouTube channel is not popular in the wide, and you know, in in the wide frame of of YouTube, but it also like has gained small amounts of traction, and I have gotten feedback. The feedback that suggests that students are learning from it, and I'm like, oh, that actually feels wonderful. You know, like, you know, a lot of people who do teaching, whether it's at the high school level or at the college level, they all admit that they love teaching when they get feedback that suggests that students are appreciative and they learn something and. And they see something in a new way. And like, those are the things that allow teachers to be exploited because they feel so good, right? That's the affective capital that we're working for. And I thought, you know, that's, I, you know, the fact that I can share these things and, and get that feedback, like it seemed like a no brainer to me. The only thing that was holding me back was an anxiety about sharing things that were unpol unpolished. For the longest time, as you can imagine, academia is such a polish, 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 wait two months, polish again, wait two months, and then publish. You know, that's a kind of practice and you internalize it. And so you become so used to not sharing anything until it's been through, you know, three rounds of peer review. So I had to get over a hump of anxiety about sharing things that were not polished. But once I did... Um, I just was kind of like, you know what, this is fine. I also kind of thought no other academics would ever find my YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> I was somewhat hoping that, you know, this is only for the masses, like, or that this is only for like random people on YouTube who are interested in, 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 in film or something. Eventually, yes, peers of mine found the YouTube channel. Um, I don't know how all of them feel about it, but you know what, once you get over the hump of being self, uh, a little anxious about it, I think it's okay. So yeah, that was my main, my main motivation for, for doing it. It's very inspiring. Like they to hear and especially like the circumstances in which um, you started creating you know it's funny like for those who are listening you know the topics range from like what is cross-cutting to what is the uh, Laura Mulvey's you know notion of the male gaze or you know uh, breaking down Bazan or, or or what have you and they're really you know I relied heavily on these videos like I foolishly took like AP calculus in high school and would like you know while I'm doing my homework would like try and remember what my teacher had said but then would, would would need like help with it and you know go and how do you do I've, I've forgotten all of it so I can't even give you a for instance of you know an example of a type of calculus video on Google but that that to me is what it feels like for you and I and I can't imagine that you know and I, I went through your videos and found comments as you say of students being like this is so helpful like thank you and so what is the like who do you see as the audience, and I mean that in a, in a specific way, like, um, you know, do you have a sense of, are they high school students, undergraduate students? Are they adults who are just like wanting to be self-taught? And then who do you imagine you're making your video for? Like, are they two different audiences or is it the same audience or multiple? So a majority of the videos I have on the channel were actually videos I made for classes that I've taught. So they were used in the classroom in some capacity, um, many of which were made for that year in which I was teaching online. So I quite literally made a lot of them for undergraduate students who are taking either intro film or film theory or say a gender and sexuality in cinema course um, or a cinema in the digital age course, right? You know, each of those classes in a way have slightly different audiences, you know, if you're talking about the importance of audience. So yes, I teach intro film very differently from how I teach 
film theory because the audiences are incredibly different. And that's something I think about all the time as a teacher, whereas, you know, you are, you know, you're performing for this group, for this abstract mass of students, but it's amazing how diverse the preparation and interest is across even say a group of 20 who are all film majors. Um, so I think about that constantly, but um, for the videos that I have made, say on the channel that were not um, things that I made for class, I, I make them as if I am making them for undergraduate students. But I have had some people say email me. I've had like one like adult learner. I, I forget how I knew that this person was like, you know, an, an adult learner not enrolled in, in college, but just said, you know what, I just like learning about this stuff. And could you tell me what that clip of that movie is in your jump cut video? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I have, see, I have seen stuff like that. My, uh, my sense is that most people watching the videos are probably undergraduate students. Some high school, if they're getting, say, difficult theory in high school, um, like my sense is I've learned recently that I think people learn Laura Mulvey in high school. Um, I certainly, yeah, I, I'm almost certainly certain that it, it does happen. It didn't happen, happen for me, but um, it seems to be people who are interested in understanding the material, probably that it was assigned in class setting um, with a small fraction of people who seem to be interested in, in learning and are okay with this lecture format, which is, of course, not the dominant edutainment format of, of YouTube. Well, I'd certainly love to go to the high, I wish I went to the high school where they taught Laura Mulvey. That audience, you know, makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I see you have over 4,000 subscribers and I hope it continues to grow because it, it, I also think, you know, I feel like every couple months there will be like a writer who like some type of like a culture writer or a political writer who's dipped into culture and they write a whole column or something and their understanding of some like theory is completely off or, or misrepresented. And maybe they were, they studied that in undergrad, like, and then they need a refresher and things like that, like, you know, in, in the 10 years that have passed and things like that. And I've certainly started watching your videos just to get a little refresher on some things where I'm like, I think I, I think I remember I, Christian, what Christian Keithley taught me about this in film theory, but I maybe need to a quick reminder and, and to go to your video. And so I think even, you know, it's fantastic because a lot of them are like three parts and can be so rich if you want, or if you just want some type of refresher or way to engage, like that exists there too, because it seems like your, your titling and your, your, your captions and things like that are all geared towards that like it all feels very accessible, which I imagine is is by design and that you can find precisely what you're looking for fairly easily. Yeah, I, I wanted to comment upon what you're saying earlier about what you were in high school in calculus searching for videos. There was a point at which I realized that I started to search YouTube when I was trying to quickly grasp a complex theoretical topic as a graduate student. Now. I didn't tell anyone I was doing this because it felt wrong. I'm a graduate student, I'm a PhD. I'm supposed to, right, at, at best look for secondary sources, like scholarly secondary sources if I wanna quickly understand X topic that's difficult. At, at best, if I'm really a scholar, I should be going straight to the source. And, and then I said, well, if I am doing this, if I find it useful to say, you know, look at a couple sources where people try to break down a complex topic in a video form, and I have been basically taught to, to, to avoid that or to do it the quote unquote proper way, right? Then I need to stop thinking about this as this, say, low form of learning. It's just the form of learning that we can't escape, right? That is just part of how people learn information. Like someone was going to make a video ch channel with film theory videos. Like someone is going to do it, right? So it made sense like, oh, why, why, why not? 
do that. Um, because frankly, like I will go back to my videos to refresh myself on some of the topics where, you know, when I'm teaching Jean-Louis Baudry's apparatus theory and I didn't have it as good as I had it when I made those videos. Like I don't have it as good in my head right now as I did when I made those videos. Those videos help me, right? It instantiates a memory, um, right? And so much so much what we do as teachers is we're lecturing and I generally don't lecture from a script. I lecture from, from the slides that I make with maybe little bits of notes. The videos are useful for me to kind of refresh myself on, on how I how I thought about something, how I summarized it, how I understood it, how I explained it. Some of what you're saying reminds me of, I, I was listening to a lecture that Katie Grant again gave a couple months ago, and I apologize to Katie in advance because I'm not going to put this as, as well as she did, but she was essentially making the point that when she makes a video essay, even if it doesn't have the markers of traditional scholarship, you know, very citation heavy or something like that, she is a scholar. Right. She has engaged with bodies of work that she brings through the process of creation. Right. And so I think that's why these videos, you know, teaching aside, like they are byproducts of your scholarly endeavors. Right. And so I think that's what's so interesting to me about them, because they're made for popular audience. They are do things that maybe the scholarly video or scholarship in general wouldn't do, but are informed by your expertise as a scholar. Um, and that feels like an obvious point, but I, I feel like it, it's not, it's not something that I, until I heard Katie put it that way, I was kind of like, ah, like, yes, that is the justification for so much of this, uh, much of this work in my mind. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the lecture videos, I don't try to do anything that resembles my own argument. Or for the most part, I'm not trying to instill my own argument. I'm not trying to, say, put forth an original claim. In fact, I'm actively trying to suppress that. I'm trying to put forth what I what I understand is either a more or less canonical or standard account within film studies. And of course, it's an impossible to pinpoint what that would be. This is just a kind of attempt of what I'm trying to do or to elucidate certain passages, right, to take a difficult passage and to model what it would look like to to break to break it down and hopefully inspire immediately, immediately my students who are trying to do something similar in their own papers to do something with different passages, right? Um, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm that I'm going for. Right. No, that makes complete sense. And I want to just let's just pivot to discussing a specific one of these videos, and, and I'm sure we'll we'll touch on some similar things. So I, I just you know there were several different examples, but I I, I went with uh, the one titled Lev Manovich's What Is Digital Cinema and Composting. Just because to just kind of direct you the listener just to one specific example, but there are you know, dozens of videos that, that you could go look at. And I, I just, I, I'm wondering if you could just, and, and walk us through the process of creation because your videos to me resemble, have mix of like the desktop documentary type feel to them. You're on screen talking, which is something that um, we would certainly associate with the YouTube aesthetic um, when it comes to video essay creation. So how do all the different elements come together from start to finish. And you can use this video as an example or just talk generally if your process is, is pretty similar across the board. Yeah, I mean, my process is pretty similar across the board when it comes to these videos with like a little image of myself in the corner, right? So this more or less is just taken from a convenient mode of recording over a PowerPoint, which is the first thing I stumbled upon and I kind of stuck with it. In fact, I remember uh, when I was initially making these videos, I had a choice to make. It's like, do I do a voiceover or do I record a little 
box of myself and I asked my students, I said, you know, I'm asking you to watch this video and it was film theory. So film theory, the students were a little more compelled to watch the video because the, the reading is darn difficult. And so I said, what do you prefer? Like voiceover me or little tiny me in the bottom right corner? And they are like, we like little tiny you in the bottom right corner. I said, you know what? You got it. So I can thank a student, you know, my class at, it was actually Michigan State University is when I first started recording because that was the tail end of, uh, of 2019 when every, everyone started to go online at the end of the school year. And so basically I had these PowerPoints that I would lecture over, um, right? I would have, and of course when I'm lecturing, I have moments where I stop and I ask questions and I have um, slides that are more discussion oriented. And making the video lectures was basically a, made, a way of quickly modifying those PowerPoints in such a way where I either took out those you know, question and answer style or I converted them into something that I wanted to demonstrate with my own words. Then I would make a video. Now the video you're talking about, the one on Lev Manovich compositing and uh, what is digital cinema is one of the many videos that I made initially and then went back to and then added footage to it to quote unquote enhance it. That's how I think about these in my mind is like these are enhanced videos. Um, I had time to say re-upload them. I put them into Adobe Premiere. I found clips to play over them to you know basically provide as much visual examples that would be both compelling visually, but also, you know, demonstrative of the things that I was talking about. And I do it rather quickly, mostly because of the demands of teaching and timelines, right? These are not the videos I spent the most time on, but I do use the time that I have to say, re-upload them to, to enhance them a little bit. So yeah, they're originally PowerPoints and then they have um, clips uh, baked right in. And in some cases, when I am lecturing, I'm like, ooh, you know what? This was better in the video when I had like immediately an example that I put in. And, um, and so sometimes when I'm like taking these materials and putting back into the classroom, I'm like, ooh, you know what? This is actually better in my video, but that's not what we're doing right now. And so I'll just have that in in, in my head. you are like, oh, I can't summon images with my hands to you, right? If that elucidates anything about the about the process, I'm not sure if that if that gets at it. No, it does. I think I think you being in the box is like very essential to me because I, I I think it what I what I appreciate about the videos is even though I even though you I could imagine avert someone doing something similar where they are literally just repurposing the material that they've already used and not like anything to it like like just like having their piece of paper and like literally doing like a a not dynamic at all powerpoint and like with just a straight voiceover and i think with you it in especially the ones where you you know this one is like the enhanced video with the, with the new images and and we see your your body and your your enthusiasm comes through in your gestures it has this like this this freshness and this this way of engaging that i think is really essential and that that I think also elevates the video beyond like an illustrated lecture, like your performance for um, is essentially what you're doing. And so I, I think that absolutely reveals a lot about your process. And one of the reasons I chose this video just just to highlight was because, you know, this this concept is different than perhaps your analyses of 
like a, you know, an editing technique or the male gaze, which is kind of this phrase and idea that extends beyond academia and someone may have encountered. And so when you're thinking about an undergraduate audience, like how do you tackle a topic like digital cinema? Because, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is a, a, a dumb question and we can move on, but I'm just wondering that if your audience is made mostly of students, then they presumably um, engage with digital cinema like the most, and it was perhaps the first kind of cinema they were exposed to or the cinema they engage with the most. And so how do you go about exploring the the nuances of that? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, you know, my a lot of my teaching uh, involves questions of the digital and, and film theory. So this particular video you're talking about happens to be for one of two units on, say, digital culture and uh, digital ontology and film theory. But I also have a course called Cinema and the Digital Age, which basically takes those issues and explodes it into a 15-week course. So I suppose I do have an interest in this and I do enjoy teaching it, right? Um, usually that digital course that never has a problem filling up. Students are, seem to be interested in this question. Um, I recently polled my film theory students and I said, which aspect of film theory interests you the most? And the digital thing seemed to be the one that people were really into. And I think it's partly for the reason that you're you're saying is this seems to be the dominant mode that people are interested in. Um, you know, at the same time, when you're so close to something, when it is like the, the water that you swim in, it's difficult to abstract it and to put it in front of you and to think about it theoretically and also to think about it as historically contingent, right? Um, and so, you know, part of my strategies for teaching these questions of, say, how did cinema change um, within the lens of film theory when it moved into various aspects of digital technology? is to try to remind students that the various aspects of digital technology matter quite a bit and the various discourses that people attach to digital uh, technology matter quite a bit. Um, some theorists claim X about this and some theorists claim Y about this. And I'm really interested in getting students to think about the logic behind those, those claims because they'll say opposite things about the same exact aspect of the, of the medium. Like the interest is certainly there, um, right? I think students are, are often really interested in, say, computer-generated imagery. They're interested in thinking critically about computer animation, right? They, they grew up with Pixar. Um, they, they're, they're now growing up with, with Marvel. And if there's a way to think critically about these things that are so ubiquitous, I think they're often, they're often drawn to it, right? And at this stage, you know, Lev Manovich wrote this, wrote this essay and the corresponding book, you know, a long time ago now. And his, the reference in his writing to say, quote unquote, CD-ROMs now involves things that they've never heard of, or at least they're like, wait a minute, what is what is he describing here? Um, and actually that it can be really useful because it invites the notion that the digital is this thing that was already, is, that is already different from what it was say 15 years ago. And the, the various kinds of technology have already changed. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a topic I love to teach. Um, the Manovich is something that I think is fairly accessible. His writing style and what is is what is uh, digital cinema is a really useful um, and accessible argument. And I also teach it in intro film. And also I pair that with um, the Wachowski Speed Racer, which is a film that I adore. And I think I can't think of a film that better exemplifies the visual logic of compositing than a film like Speed Racer, which is all about showing you the seams between image layers in a way that, say, if you watch a David Fincher film, you can't see the seams at all. I really appreciate what you're saying. I would love to see your syllabus for that course. Um, and I wish we could talk about the video in, in more detail and just digital cinema in general, because it it's definitely 
the area of interest I'm moving into. And, and I see a lot of overlap with the kinds of things we talk about on this show and, and things like that. So maybe, maybe we'll have a whole series on digital cinema for the podcast another time. Um, but I want to, I want to move here to, to, to talking about your other, your other work. And you have a number of really great videos, one of which we will take a deep dive into in a moment on your Vimeo page. And you have you so you have you videos on YouTube and videos on Vimeo. And I there may be a couple overlaps, but I think for the most part, they they're, they're pretty separate entities like your your video on uh, the long take that was published in transition is um, the follow shot. I'm sorry. Yeah, the follow shot um, is. Um, your Vimeo page and on In Transition. Walk us through how you make that division and how we talked about this at the beginning of our conversation, but how you work through that spectrum and decide. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So technically speaking, everything that I have is on YouTube, but some of them are more pronounced and do do much better based on what what platform, right? So the the scholarly, quote unquote, scholarly video essays that I've made, right? And already that tells you a little bit about what is informing my decision to say, put something on one platform and put something on the other. I think those scholarly video essays, which involve no voiceover topics that are more academic in nature, um, arguments that are my own and not merely explanations of uh, film theory, those, I feel like they belong on Vimeo. Their home is Vimeo. Vimeo is the place where the scholarly video essay community lives. You know, I've, I've, they've get a little bit more attention. It's interesting, like those videos I've put on YouTube just, you know, just to see, they get, they get very little attention there. And it kind of consolidates an intuition that I already had, right? Which is that the nature of, of YouTube is such that that slow meditative kind of vibe that that I think is fairly common in scholarly video essays is just unacceptable on YouTube. I think there's maybe one of my videos that has performed a little bit better, one of my scholarly videos that has performed a bit better on YouTube. And I think that's because it's about a film that I think people are searching for and not getting a lot of hits. And so they'll get my video that's about this film. Um, but for the most part, right, YouTube and Vimeo represent very different video essay cultures. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that I don't dare put any of my video lectures on Vimeo, right? Vimeo is an extension of a kind of artist space, video artists, um, and scholarly video essays are kind of extension of, of that. So I feel very self-conscious about putting anything with such a lack of polish like my like my video lectures on, on Vimeo. Interestingly, I have put some of what I call my video essay lectures. So there's like a third kind of video that I make, which is I take a lecture that I've made. I try to create a YouTube style video out of it to kind of make it more appealing to students and maybe see if other people on the internet will like it. They do not do very well on Vimeo at all. Um, and frankly, those are the videos I've put the most time into. Um, to be honest, I have a video on, on Speed Racer that I made for that very class I was discussing earlier, and I put a lot of time into that video. Um, it hasn't gotten a huge traction on, on YouTube, which is where it lives, but I also just put it on Vimeo. I don't think it's gotten any traction on Vimeo at all. And I wouldn't call it unpolished with respect to the others, right? Because it took a, a great deal of time, but it does have that kind of entertainment aesthetic that I associate with YouTube, right? You know, chill beats, as, as the kids say, overlaying images. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's really interesting just to see that these two spaces create completely different aesthetics and values. 
I really appreciate what you're saying because I think, and it actually calls into question the way that I've I've kind of framed this conversation in the past, which is like, oh, you either decide that you're making work for YouTube or Vimeo. And then that kind of, I feel like I've always thought of it as like that, the work you create in like which platform you want to live on informs the work you create. But it seems like for you, it's you create the work and then you find the correct home, um, which is really useful way to think about it. So let's talk about the wind in the trees from early cinema to Pixar, which um, is, is a is a video that exists on your 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 Vimeo. Um, and that's how I first discovered it. What I what I before I ask you to just kind of walk us through the creation of this video, I'll just offer a brief explanation for why I chose it, because Jordan asked me to select the videos of uh, of his t- to talk about is because what's so great is I can you can if I just showed this video and one of your video lectures, I think someone could perhaps discern that they were made by the same person, you know, because you're kind of borrowing that same pedagogical approach in this video you are engaging with your own analysis here more. So you dip into the poetics here. Um, You go with text on screen instead of voiceover. Um, And so it's a really interesting way of seeing, of engaging with your body of work to see the similarities, but also the differences and these questions of audience and where it's housed and who it's for. So I would just be curious to, to, yeah, for you to just kind of walk us through how this video came to be. The video came to be when I asked the publisher of my of my current book if I could make videographic accompaniments to to my chapters, um, and my publisher said, "Sure, why not?" I had been inspired by a good friend of mine who published uh, his book on a somewhat similar topic. He's an animation scholar. He also did videographic accompaniments, and I had no idea that that was a thing one could do. And so I just kind of asked if this is something that I could do. And he said, yes. And then I had something to do over the summer in which I asked, um, I, I was kind of looking for a project. And um, so what this video essay is in origin is um, supposed to be an accompaniment to one of the chapters of my book, which I had already kind of published an article version of. But the main thing that I wanted to do, say a little bit differently from how my friend did his, was I wanted the video to be a standalone piece. I wanted anyone who could pick it up to understand at least an argument. Not all of the arguments in the essay, not the entirety of them, but I wanted to create some kind of linear argumentative piece that could stand on its own. And I wanted that to be the model for all of the all of the essays, video essays that I made um, to accompany the book. And of course I made them long before the book came out. And so I just had these things. And so I put them up on Vimeo and I gave them their own titles, not indicating that they were part of a book project, but just saying, hey, these are these things that I made. I put them up on Vimeo, which is where the scholarly video essay community lives. Um, and, um, and that was that. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of the aesthetic choices that I made, like not doing voiceover, doing text, came from the practices that I was most comfortable with that I learned at video camp in 2017. I think I heard you say, Will, in one of your um, one of your episodes that you were more comfortable or you meant that you were less comfortable with voiceover than you were with uh, text on screen, even though I've seen some of your voiceover work and I think it's really good. I was similarly very uncomfortable with doing voiceover. Um, I couldn't hear listen to myself speak. And I couldn't ever get that the tone. Like, am I going for this, uh, like a seriousness? Like, am I going full Koganata, or am I, or am I trying to do like this 
an entertainment, like fun voice thing. I didn't feel comfortable like performing a version of my voice at all, but I was very comfortable with this text on screen thing, right? And so I was like, that's how I'm gonna do these things. But I also wanna create music because I wanna create a mood um, it's like, it's, it's unfair almost, right? Like you can transform something with the right music piece. And this, you know, if you're really savvy at it, you know, create various musical pieces and, and time them correctly. But yeah, I wanted to create a, a text on screen, shortened, simplified version of, of one of the arguments within the, the essay, um, which is very much about the myth of the wind of the trees, which is a formative uh, a major, a major kind of anecdote within film theory that you know early spectators, when they were first looking at films in the years, say 1895 to 1899, were fixated on small kind of natural movements like leaves swaying in the background of of films, or dust particles, or rippling waves. And this was something that I was been, I had been fascinated by for a long time. Uh, I came up with the idea for a kind of an original argument about it. Um, Pretty early on in my academic career, I was a TA for an uh, early film history course. And I remember the professor kind of telling his students about this and then giving a kind of a simple explanation. And I thought, wait a minute, that can't be the explanation. I mean, that makes a certain sense, but there's so much more to this thing, right? So I had a very kind of nerdy scholarly interest in coming up with an explanation for this phenomenon that satisfied me. So yeah, I you know held on to this idea for a long time and much later got to make a videographic version of it. I believe Chris Keatley's book is it, it's called Cinephilia and History or the Wind in the Trees. Um, and so I, uh, it, it's such a beautiful and poetic image, like to engage with it at all. It, it, it just like it demands, as you say, like the mood that your music evokes and just the kind of the, the text on screen f for me, I think, is my way of making sure that I'm focusing on the image. Like, I think sometimes when I do a voiceover, I get so caught up in that that maybe I'm I'm not as good at having the two interact. Some people are really good at it, but I think that's kind of where I I struggle. And so for here, I think that the text on screen works because it's just the the music just kind of allows us just it envelops us in the image and, and the poetics of it all. And I'm I'm wondering. Did you think about like one thing that I like about this is that, you know, we think of that poetic explanatory spectrum and there's a ton of room for nuance there. And this video is one such example because it contains that amount of text that we might expect from a more explanatory scholarly video. But this video is also deeply poetic. It 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 moved me. And I'm wondering if did you think about it's, it's, I'm getting the sense that you did, like that you thought about these rhetorical approaches, and it seems like that's what makes the the, the piece be able to stand on its own more more than anything is that commitment to the poetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, initially with my with my thought about these, I wasn't thinking that they would have any kind of poetic value at all. I wanted them to be useful, right, because they were supplementary, and then. When I, when I kind of committed to the idea that they wouldn't be merely supplements, that I wanted them to stand on its own, right? Commitment builds on commitment. And I was like, oh, you know what? This is becoming this thing that has its own vibe. And I want it to be able to to speak to somebody who is not interested in this book at all, who has no idea about the written version, but that this is a piece on its own. 
And I think I was also encouraged by um, by a friend of mine, uh, Nicole Morse, who was also at Video uh, Video Camp 2017, who was a colleague of mine at um, uh, UChicago, and we went to Video Camp the same year. So when I was making these videos, I was circulating a draft of each of them to my writing group, who were you know peers of mine at UChicago, Nicole being one of them. And Nicole really kept reminding me to try to let the image speak for itself when it could. They were so good at reminding me about the poetic not being divorced from the explanatory, that you could find moments of poetry, that you don't have to explain this here. You can actually just use the words and have them stand next to each other. So I really owe it to, say, friends and peers who are who are invested in certain aesthetic principles to remind you that hey sometimes less is more um i i had a hard time with this at video camp because you know the the video that i made there was based on an article and so you know the the argument was my baby and i didn't want to say uh you know decrease the specificity uh, and nuance of the argument by taking away words taking away explanation but so much of what they're teaching you there is for the image and sound to speak for itself and what you'll lose in like a kind of philosophical rigor that you might get from from statements and phrases you can gain something else right you can let a viewer just sit with an image for a little bit in this case i could let viewers sit with say two words on screen right i i talk a lot about the difference between what i call unplanned movement and unplannable movement which i explain at length in my essay it's it's supposed to be a very fine-grained linguistic distinction that's going to help us understand the difference between certain two, two types of cinematic contingency, right? But you know, there's a moment in the video where I just kind of let unplanned and unplannable sit up there as words, and then I have images underneath them and, and hope that the viewer is starting to understand the distinction. I don't know if it works, right? But the, the commitment to say, you know, sometimes you can let words sit back, sometimes you can let an image linger for a little bit, um, or there's a moment in the music that you just want, a, you know, a musical phrase to end and for you know the viewer to rest with it for a second. I think those are good spaces for for the poetic, right? Um, and you know, I, I agree. There's there there are those moments in there, and I think that's what makes it um, successful if it is successful. I imagine that's a deceptively simple thing to do. Like, did you find that hard to to pinpoint the exact word that would like capture it and, and know when to place it together? Or does that kind of is it one of those things that as you're editing and as you're thinking through it, just kind of falls together? Well, yeah, like the idea of say uh, highlighting one one word with a particular color or something is is what you're referring to, right? Right. And then knowing like that's the word I'm going to highlight and that's the word that I'm going to fade to. And then I'm going to hinge everything essentially around those two words. Like, I think I I just I'm always curious because when I watch the video, I'm like, makes perfect sense. Like, of course. But you don't. I don't it it, the and, and you might have already answered this in your last question, but just like the thought process to get to that point is. I, I imagine or I know that a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of thinking and, and planning and messing around must be in the lead up to deciding on those two words and how to like land the punch. No, you know, ab- absolutely. And I, I think especially for this kind of video where I've already made a 30 page single spaced version of this argument. And now I have to whittle down my my language to like, you know, half a page of words. Right. So like words are these things where I where I had as many of them as I wanted 
right? Um, and now I'm creating, you know, this aesthetic challenge where I do not get as many as uh, of them, right? And so it really makes you think about like the precise words that you're going to put on the on the screen at any given moment. And then, of course, the idea of, say, highlighting particular words is just another way to to kind of double down on, on, on your word choice. Right. Like I'm going to tell you that this word really matters. Um, and how am I going to do that? Right. So I think in, in one way, this is something that I just habitually do when I teach with lectures, I always, I, I tend to like highlight particular words when I have passages from other theorists or when I'm summarizing something. And I remember a friend of mine saw me give a conference talk and he said, you know, I like the way you're highlighting certain words in yellow. And it's like, it's really simple, but I never really thought about it. And it's like, it's really useful. I was like fixating on those words. And I was like, oh, you know what? I guess it is useful. And uh, that's cool because I never really thought about it. And then it became something that I did a lot in these particular videos. Right. Um, and a lot of the arguments, they, they do come from very fine distinctions, um, or at least this is my attempt, you know, between particular terms, right? Um, I have this really bad habit in my writing of italicizing way too much. And that's because like, I'm trying to say, no, this word as opposed to that one matters, right? And of course my editor is like, you need to take these, these italics away, like, which I get, it's a crutch. But in a way, right, I got to kind of do my italicizing thing with with color and create maybe a little bit of visual interest. Whereas maybe, you know, when you're reading it uh, on the page with with italics everywhere, it just can be, it becomes obnoxious. Even if you have, as you say, this 30 page single space argument, trying to work with the same material in this way will teach you something new, challenge it. Like, you know, and, and in talking with, you know, uh, not just academics, but like critics that I, that I know and colleagues and things, it's like, I always say, and always talk about, like, I, I just feel that this kind of work, even if you don't want to primarily be a video essayist and that's like not what you want to do, that if you don't try and engage in some way, it doesn't even need to result in a single standalone poetic great piece. If you're not at least trying to tackle it from a different way, especially in our current digital environment, like, you're missing you're kind of missing out you know assuming you have access to resources and, and all those things that you know goes without saying but um no it, it's a beautiful testament to i think like the potential of this work and so i'm excited to now go and read your book and kind of reverse engineer and see uh see how things turn out one final question uh that i i have for you is that i personally watching those lumiere films and seeing you manipulate them in particular the moment where you kind of do the zoom in on the wind in the trees like just that like moves me because it, it in that we see like the beginning and end of film history if i like like you know we have these early films and now here you are showcasing the digital technology that we have now to like find a new way to appreciate them and it it's was just really great i just want to say that to you and i i would just be curious to hear like just kind of this in relation to your own cinephilia and what it was like to to work with this material that is so like special <laughs> i guess the the desire to make the video or something that i was excited about was like oh finally what i can do is i can zoom in on the marginal right like the anecdote is that the marginal was in a sense like mentally zoomed in on by the spectator right <laughs> and like we are told this and when i was shown this film you know as a graduate student 
and told this anecdote. It was, you know, the baby's breakfast and the part of the screen that they're talking about is really just, you know, a, a fragment of the screen that's in the top right. And now I can like visually represent what it what it feels like to fixate your attention on a marginal part of the screen. And it's a fairly simple thing to do, but it was deeply satisfying. Right. I think that's kind of what you're getting at was like, oh, there's something satisfying about seeing the thing that I know in film history was the thing that got people excited to have it take over the entire screen. Right. And, you know, speaking of like cinephilia, I'd really gotten interested in this whole idea very early on in my academic career, reading books like uh, Chris Keithley's Cinephilia in History or The Wind in the Trees. I was obsessed with that book. I read it. Um, I I, I learned so much from from that book and I realized that it was putting together a, you know a ways of thinking from an entire history of film theory. Frankly, I had never really seen before before I got a, hand, a hold of this book. My interests have never really departed that much from the stuff that Chris talks about. Some of my writing responds directly to what Chris Keithley, argues and sometimes it's opposed to Chris Keithley but what that really means is it's because I learned it from from Chris Keithley and, and people of his ilk you know um, and I, I never lost my fascination with this stuff and I think what you can do with videographic criticism that you can like take the marginal and blow it up or you can slow it down you can get people to fixate on things that are ephemeral and fleeting um, that is that itself is like a visual instantiation of a mode of spectating that some like Chris will call cinephilia. And so it made perfect sense, I think, for me to create videographic supplements for each of these chapters that are somewhat about cinephilic modes of seeing. Most of the things in my book are about tiny little fragments of movement. And I'm like, this thing is interesting. Do you think it's interesting? I want to show you why I think it's interesting. Um, you can, you know, you can read my chapter about it, but better yet, let me show it to you. And, you know, do you see what I see? Right. And so that do you see what I see, I think, is at the basis of this phenomenon that Chris is interested in historicizing and theorizing and investigating as this like aspect of film theory that has this beautiful through line. I think you've just summed up like exactly what I love so much about this form, which is the I saw this thing. Now I want to show you. If that is the through line through a video, going back to what we talked about in your original supercut, it will like it will I think almost always like strike a chord and and and, and come across. Um, no, it's very exciting. And Chris's book is fantastic, obviously, although I have a million biases when it comes to Chris, but um and I, I would actually be very curious to hear, I don't know if you've talked to him what, what he would make of this uh this uh this video essay because i know he has a lot of views on animation and cinema and and, and things like that so I'd, it'd be very curious to hear what he has to say so chris if you want to call in um no uh but uh, yeah you know i wonder that myself when i went when i got to video camp i had written these papers that were kind of arguing against Chris's book, but I didn't tell him that I was writing this, you know, and, I, and once again, I say if I'm arguing with someone, it probably means I'm a big fan and I love them. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of Chris Keith Lee. When I got to know him, uh, it was it was so great. Um, but I never really got a chance to sit down and, and say, hey, you know, did you realize that I spent a long time of, you know, my dissertation and now book basically reading with reading, reading your book and, and responding to it? Um, so I don't know. We haven't had that conversation, but maybe someday we will. Yes, I would. I would love to be in the audience for that conversation. Um, now, let us transition to talking about 
the video that you've selected for us uh, to talk about, um, a video by Grace Lee, who was the third guest on this podcast, I believe, a very early guest and who I've gotten to know and who made this video that I think everyone engaged with the video essay world has probably seen. And if not, you should go see it right away. But I'll leave it to you, Jordan, to to introduce it to us and to just kind of offer why you selected it for us to talk about it. Obviously, it makes a natural fit for this podcast. Um, but I'd just be curious to hear why it, you know, resonated with you. Yeah. So, so the video, um, which I believe is entitled, What Isn't a Video Essay, is the latest from Grace Lee's YouTube channel. Um, what's so great about that? It is a, an examination, a kind of whimsical ex- exploration of the question, what isn't a video essay? But really what I think about it is as is an introduction to topics about categorization and concept formation, which are really about kind of philosophy and social theory. Um, and the thing that I think I love most about this video is that, that it takes this kind of playful, almost innocuous kind of question, what isn't a video essay? And it analogizes it to other playful kind of internet meme questions like, is a sandwich a hot dog? Um, or is Die Hard a Christmas movie or is it not? And it takes those really kind of fun, impossible not to jump into a conversation about topics as a way to introduce fairly rigorous and interesting and difficult and puzzling questions about what makes a category a category, how do categories function, how do we tease apart these these conceptual puzzles, and then finds its way back into the question about video essay scholarship. And... uh, and it almost kind of reflects some of the things that we've been talking about today, which is like the the practices divided between YouTube and Vimeo. This is the first time where I've seen someone in a video essay kind of talk about the differences between YouTube and Vimeo in a way that was so satisfying. Um, and I, just, I and I was reading the comments below the video, and I, I get so stoked when I see like really really popular video essayists be like, "Yes, you are the greatest at this." And you know, I you know I am someone you know for example who has 150,000 followers, but you are the best at this. And I'm like, yes, I'm so glad when people get that Grace Lee is the best at this. You you touched on something that I think if I was to describe what I so appreciate about Grace's work, Grace's ability to tie several different online discourses together and to make it this cohesive whole, like to address this YouTube Vimeo thing and the, is a hot dog a sandwich and like engaging with like scholarly resources and knowing that this video is going to go out into these communities and have a response from it and knowing that you have to engage with all of that and with it will be satisfactory to all these different stakeholders is like jaw dropping. I really, Grace is a very humble person. So I, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure if we like ask like, how do you do it? Like I, I, you know, uh, but it, it, it is like, I'm just like amazed by it and I can see you nodding. So I'll, yeah, I'll pass the baton to you. <laughs> yeah. Jaw dropping and amazing are things that I often think, or I, I get envious from like, that is a perfect way to say that thing and to show it right. The humor, like the visual humor tied with vocal performance tied all together, it astounds me. Because if anyone has ever tried to be entertaining <laughs> on a video, it is so incredibly difficult uh, or to be humorous and to realize how much of that comes down to minutia of, of timing and, and vocal cues. 
it it astounds me, but just the level of a sensitivity to audiovisual presentation is is extraordinary to me. And also, for example, there's one moment where Grace quotes, I think the writer Gia Tolentino, and it's just a quick reference to essentially how this obsession with categorization can be tied to companies wanting to get more and more data points and kind of the growth of capitalism and wanting to know how to market to you and and knowing exactly what you want and need. All of it might last 15 seconds. I'm not sure, but like talking about like the, the, the brevity thing we were talking about in your, you know, wind in the trees video, it's like, it's just like a quick punch kind of, you get it, it sticks with you, it's there, but then it's on to the next, but it doesn't feel overly brief. And that is such like a, that is such a skill <laughs> that goes, I think like that maybe is deceptively looks deceptively simple and easy because a, it's a combination of knowing exactly how to put things, but then b knowing when to move on, like having, it, it almost feels like a, like a gut instinct. Like I almost want to show videos to my students and be like, look, the Rick Altman essay, the star of the show. Don't you feel, don't you feel excited that I've given you these PDFs that they're like, like they have been animated and scrolled through and underlined. The scripts seem to be interested in, in not simply having things being simple and explanatory. It seems as if the words have have a poetry and and a kind of humor and a specificity um, that kind of you're just barely holding on in a way, right? They're fast paced, they're thoughtful, and they're um, and they're and they're super intelligent. When I was rewatching the video for this for this discussion, I had to like stop and say, oh, did I understand the entire subclaim that happened within seven seconds there? Um, because I didn't get it the first time around, right? Um, and the same thing goes with visual references. I was also going through the comments of this and i'll just i just want to read one by someone named tom nicholas who commented can't believe my favorite video essay is just defined the video essay out of existence <laughs> um and i i love that comment because the video kind of seems to be doing two things at once and perhaps you can you have a take on this and can help me work through what i'm trying to say but i'll i'll do the best i can Grace starts by leaning into a kind of subjective argument and saying, like, I have this art background. Starts with the subjective and then kind of veers off into looking at both sides and all like or not both sides, but just like 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 leaning into the ambiguity of it all and not actually trying to make this one bold claim. I'm more telling you what I think about it so that you understand how I'm feeling my way through this. But the conclusion is not like this is a video essay and this isn't. In fact, it leads with more questions and ultimately in a way perhaps reinforces the idea that like anything can be a video essay. Dialectic is not a word I like to throw around because I find it's often used. And I, I guess I'm just meaning something close to what, what Plato would mean by dialectical, but like a back and forth um, between one argument and its counter argument being lobbied back and forth until we narrow into something closer to enlightenment, right? Um, right. I would say if the video ends on something, it, it tries to end on, an, on the idea of categorization, not as something that comes down from the sky, but as something that's formed by human beings and that can get you to see new things. But I wouldn't say that that is the thesis of the essay. I would say the aim of the essay is to elucidate various complexities about the topic of categorization um, that seem to dovetail nicely with this interesting puzzle about what makes a video essay a video essay and what could be excluded from that category. 
but also it's the kind of way of writing that is so difficult to do. Like I could not, as you were saying earlier, I could not do a Grace Lee style video essay. It would be so difficult. You know, I've been stuck in a way of thinking and writing for for a while. I don't think I could manage to do what maybe sometimes and within teaching, I'll, I'll try to model that kind of thing where I'm not committed to a particular position that I want to make, but I'm just interested in exploding something. Absolutely. I think that notion of pedagogy brings us full circle in this conversation um, and I think is a great place uh, to end. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much um, for your time and for, for joining the Video Essay Podcast. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. And I'm, and I'm honored to chat with you.